This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. This is episode number 57. Today's Friday, March 2nd. We want to make sure that we thank our two sponsors right at the top of the show, tinyletter.com. Send email newsletters the easiest and most simple way possible and Shopify. Create your own online store today. We also want to mention the bandwidth for this episode is provided by Mac Mini Colo. I host a handful of servers there to help run 5x5 and you can too. MacMiniColo.net slash 5x5 as a special discount for you. This is why we need faster file systems. I'm learning how to use computers today, John. How are you? I can relaunch my apps a little bit faster. You have all SSD. You've got mirrored and striped SSD drives in all of your computers. Dave Nanian, the guy who makes Super Duper, uh, doesn't trust the SSD drives typically. He doesn't trust them. You're not supposed to trust any drive. The whole point is that's well, the point going to have. But he trusts those less than he distrust. He he distrusts them even more than he distrusts his other. What yeah, about I that? Probably, People have emailed asking you what what about SSDs, John? Yeah, I probably distrust them too. Well, today's show will be a follow up show uh, on file systems. So we will talk about all these issues. We don't have any other thing to talk about today. No, Just, no, no. iPad three comments or predictions. Maybe we'll throw that in at the end. Okay. All right, we're going to get going here now that my audio is actually working. I, I would like to blame this audio stuff on Lion, but this happened in Snow Leopard too. Like, you know, everything's all set up, and the last thing I do is, you know, go testing one, two, three into my mic, and nothing. The meters don't move at all. <laughs> Unplug the mic, plug it back in, nothing. So the old reboot. That's, this is the only time I ever reboot my Mac, you know, is when the audio stops working. And yeah, before you started doing the show, you had an uptime of like three years, and as soon as you have this show, you're lucky to get the full seven days. Well, no, as soon as the, I had uh, my uptime was the space between security updates to Mac OS X, <laughs> the ones that made you restart. All right, let's go. Do it. Follow up. Uh, I was listening to myself in uh, Hypercritical episode 56 uh, in, in the car this week, as I always do, and was cringing as I heard myself repeatedly use the word defer about deferring the costs. And, and I, wasn't, I didn't mean deferring the costs as in pushing them off in time. This was in uh, connection to Apple's uh, data centers and the cost of running them, the cost of running iCloud and the developers using iCloud APIs. And no sooner had I gotten out of the car and uh, logged onto the computer that I got a tweet from someone, uh, Nathan Peretic, I hope I got that right, telling me that I should not be saying the word defer. And I said, I know, I just heard myself saying it in the car, it was horrible. Uh, I should have said either offset or defray. Defray is probably the word that was getting mapped wrong in my brain. Uh, and the point I made to him on Twitter is it's interesting that listening to myself, as soon as I said it, you can hear, oh, that's wrong. What, what is this guy talking about, right? But saying it, I, I said it like nine times without my brain triggering the warning you were using the wrong word, uh, right? So it's kind of like writing and proofreading. When I'm speaking, things come out of my mouth that don't match what my brain was thinking. So I apologize for that. And thanks for the correction, Nathan. Uh, a correction from Mark Hoffman about uh, notifications in Notification Center in Mountain Lion. We're just asking how uh, that was one of the APIs that was getting swept up into the uh, group of things that are only available to Mac developers who put their application on the Mac App Store. And I was saying how that was weird because 
Yes, notifications can be synchronized through the cloud from one device to the other and show up on your desktop for an event triggered on your phone and vice versa. But notifications also work locally. If you just have a local Mac application that, that wants to put up a little notification dialog that says, hey, something happened over here, take a look, and they want to do something more than just have a dock icon badge or bounce or something. And uh, Notification Center is for that as well. And I said, boy, it's a shame that those guys that you can't even use Notification Center for that uh, if you're not in the Mac App Store, even though it has nothing to do with iCloud. Well, it turns out that if you do only local notifications, you can use Notification Center in Mountain Lion, even if you're not in the Mac App Store. So the only thing that you are barred from is so-called push notifications, notifications that are synchronized through Apple servers. Uh, so that's good to know. Uh, Andrew Lawrence was the first person to chime in to tell me that the NetApp Oracle lawsuit that I mentioned as a possible reason that Apple bailed on ZFS uh, was settled shortly after Sun was uh, acquired by Oracle. Uh, I put a link to the press release in the show notes. It was actually September 2010. That was still after, long after Apple had decided, uh, had made its decision on ZFS. So I'm not sure settling helped or hurt one way or the other, but by then it was too late. But, uh, it's a good point that it actually has been settled and it's not dragging on. The settlement was one of those ones where it's uh, you know, dismissed without prejudice and the terms of the agreement are confidential. So we don't know what actually happened. They just probably exchanged a sufficient amount of money between parties and everything's all better now. JP? I don't know why I just have JP. Maybe that's all I could get out of his Twitter handle or email or something. Was the first to point out that BTRFS is pronounced ButterFS. I had heard that pronunciation, but I wasn't <laughs> aware it was the official... Apparently, it is the official pronunciation. I don't, I, I don't really like the idea of food mixing with my file systems. So ButterFS sounds a little weird to me. But if it's ButterFS, then it's ButterFS. So I will endeavor to say ButterFS from now on. <laughs> uh, uh, JP has some other information. Uh, he apparently, oh, This is why he just has JP. Uh, he worked in a Genius Bar for a while in an Apple store. Uh, and here's a uh, quoting from his message. We got almost as many OK hard drives, according to Smart Status, which were unrepairable in disk utility as we did actual failed hard mm. drives. So what he's, what he's saying is that, you know, people would come into the Genius Bar and they would have a problem with their hard drive. And half the time, there was a hardware problem with the hard drive. But the other half of the time, it was just HFS plus corruption. So, you know, fully 50% of their hard drive related problems were not due to hardware, but were due to HFS corruption. And he says, all in all, hard drive issues accounted for about 30% of all issues. So about 15% for directory failure. So he's saying 15% of all problems that come to the Genius Bar in his experience were due to HFS plus corruption. And across all of Apple's customers, this is a, a pretty big uh, number. I'm actually surprised at that. I'm surprised that 30% that of all Genius Bar issues were hard drives, hard drive related. Uh, but it's really sad that Half of the hosts, 15% of all possible Genius Bar things are due to HFS plus corruption. So it shows that this is, really is a problem. And Apple, I mean, Apple's got to track these stats and has to know, geez, you know, 15% of the people who come to the Genius Bar is due to bugs in our own software. Uh, we really need to address that file system thing. So a couple people, I don't remember who sent this, might have been in the chat room, but I don't have a, an attribution for it. Send me a link to an LWN.net article called A Short History of ButterFS. And that uh, I hadn't known too much about ButterFS except that it was the kind of like a, you know, the GPL uh, Linux-directed ZFS-like file system. 
uh, and I also knew that it wasn't quite done yet. So both of those are true, but this this uh, article that I linked in the show notes is written by someone who worked extensively on ZFS, and it goes through the history of how ButterFS came to be and what's different about it than ZFS. And I think it's worth, I guess I'll hit, worth hitting the highlights of instead of just saying go read this article because it is a long article, and maybe if you're not really into this, you won't read the whole darn thing. Um, so the B, actually the BTR part in ButterFS uh, stands for B-trees. It's short for B-trees. It's, uh, it's another victim of the great vowel sor- shortage of 1972, which has stricken uh, the Unix landscape and continues <laughs> to be a problem. They didn't even have an E left over for the create system call. That's how bad it was. Uh, but apparently it's still going on. So uh, uh, file systems use B-trees because they're an efficient data structure for looking stuff up, inserting stuff, and deleting stuff. If you take any computer science course, you'll eventually do a chapter on trees, and they're all different kinds of trees. And you've seen the diagram of them. It's like a circle with a bunch of lines connecting, and there's, you know, out of each little circle, there are, are, uh, you know, one or more lines, and then there are circles connected to those, and it just makes a big tree structure. Um, Bee trees are a particular kind of tree uh, that... You know, the characteristics of trees are how many how many different branches come out of each one. How do you insert something into the tree? How do you remove something from the tree? Uh, I'm not going to go into the esoteric details of, of uh, bee trees in particular, but suffice it to say that bee trees are, specific variant of bee trees are among the most efficient general purpose tree structure for, you know, they do everything pretty well. You can insert things pretty quickly. You can delete things pretty quickly. They don't get unbalanced. Uh, they don't require a lot of maintenance to, to keep balanced. It's kind of like a good middle ground for the types of things that you might want to uh, keep track of in a file system. You know, because you don't want it to be something to be really quick to read from, but really slow to write. Because file systems tend to do all that stuff: read, write, and delete in in generally, you know, equal measures. Uh, but B trees are not particularly good when it comes to the strategy that ZFS implements, where they never overwrite data in place. You know, that's the, this is the copy on write strategy, where if you have new data to write, write it to a new location rather than writing over on top of the old one. And if you want to mod, that's the, what the copy on write means. It's saying if, if it's time for you to write some data, instead of overwriting that data, find where that data is and then make a new copy of it somewhere else that's different than the old one. Uh, but B trees are not compatible with that at all. Because if you were to, to naively implement copy and write with a B tree, then anytime you changed anything, the entire tree from top to bottom would have to be changed uh, because the changes would propagate back up the tree because you're making a new instance. So uh, almost all B trees in file systems, and by the way, HFS Plus and HFS use B trees extensively. B trees in file systems tend to be updated in place because that preserves all the desirable performance characteristics of a B tree. And once you start saying, oh, we can't update anything in place, we always have to write new data to a new location, then B trees seem useless. So uh, many years ago, someone named Ohad Roday, I don't know if I got this name right, O H A D R O D E H, wrote an academic paper, uh, as people in academia tend to do, about a new kind of B tree that was friendly to copy and write. He found a way that if you, well, if you change B trees in this way, then we actually can get reasonably good performance characteristics while still not ever updating data in place. Uh, and this academic paper probably sat around for a while until someone named Chris Mason found this and said, hey, uh, if I have a B tree structure that's also friendly to copy and write, maybe I can use that in a new file system. And his big insight for creating his new file system was to decide that everything in the file system will be stored in one of these copy-on-write-friendly B-trees. 
uh, normally you have B trees for storing like, oh, I'll, I'll keep track of uh, directory entries with, uh, with the B tree, but when I'll have a separate data structure for keeping track of free space, like a bitmap or something, and I'll have a separate structure for keeping uh, track of extents or, you know, there are usually different kinds of data structures tailored for each purpose. He decided, well, this data structure looks so great. What if everything is stored in one of these copy and B trees? And I'll store the directory entries, the, the free space lists, the extents, the, the file data itself, everything in one of these B trees. And that's a nice unifying concept because it means that you only really need to have one code path. And once you get your code for reading, writing, and modifying these B trees, like down pat and debugged, you're all set. You don't have to say, okay, well, what about the code that manages the, the free space? And what about the code that manages the directory entries? And what you, not, not 17 different algorithms and 17 different data structures, just one thing. And then you, you know, so the code is simpler, smaller, and uh, nicely uniform. And, and programmers love this type of thing. So that's the basis of, of BTRFS, building an entire file system on this, uh, this new uh, data structure. Uh, and that's very interesting to me. And I didn't, I didn't know this before I had read, and it definitely hits all of my, uh, buttons for uh, computer science and programmers like, oh, it's, it's beautiful and elegant and has great performance characteristics and it has all these features of ZFS. The article goes into much more detail about how ZFS and BTRFS are the same and how they differ. They both kind of arrived at similar points from different directions uh, and they do have different advantages and disadvantages versus each other. So I encourage everyone to actually follow that link and read it. It's not that long and it's not too jargon inducing. It's a short history of BTR. Oh, I almost did it. Of ButterFS. And we will be revisiting this topic in a bit once we get through the official follow-up. Uh, Lenny P. Robert writes to tell me that uh, there is a program that will look f- through your HFS plus volume and try to detect if there are any errors. And how does it do this? It mi- checksums everything and writes a bunch of little checksum files to each directory. And then the next time you ask it to check, it says, okay, I have this file here that says the checksum is supposed to be blah. I will recheck some all these files and see if it matches. Uh, a lot of people were asking me, hey, I'm afraid that my data is going bad on my HFS plus volumes. How do I tell? And uh, I, did, I wasn't aware of this program before, but other people wrote in with it. So I replied, so this is one of the tools available to you. Now, if you think about it for too long, you realize that this program, which is called Integrity Checker, by the way, uh, it's kind of in a catch-22 because it's storing the checksums on the same disk that you're not trusting to make sure your data is okay. You know what I mean? So if you have a bit error and it happens to be an error in the checksum file, then it will look like all your data is corrupted when really it's the checksum that's corrupted. So at the very least, this might tell you something is wrong. What exactly is wrong, what you can do about it, I don't know. But it, you could use this, for example, to keep proving to yourself that your backups are the same as they were the last time. You know, like, I haven't, I haven't modified anything. Let me look at my time machine backup as of three months ago. Is that data still exactly what it was when I wrote it three months ago? Or is there something wrong with it? When there is something wrong, you may not be able to tell exactly what's wrong, but at least you know your data is bad. Uh, so I have a link to this product in the show notes. Uh, I have not tried it myself. I don't even know how much it costs. Uh, but for people who are paranoid about data integrity, it's, uh, it's, it seems that third parties are taking up the mantle of attempting to do something about this problem. Uh, as you might imagine, anything that's going to grind over your whole disk and checksum every single thing and check that the checksums are the same 
it's going to be tremendously IO intensive and it probably takes a really long time. Uh, that's what you get when you have to do it on top of an existing file system instead of having it built in. Uh, and Gregory Williams uh, pointed me to another third-party product. This one uh, allows uh, you to tap into HFS Plus's native compression that was introduced in Snow Leopard. I talked about it on the last show how there was no like UI for that in the uh, in the OS, and Apple decided to compress a whole bunch of files sort of out of the box, but you didn't really have any control over that. Well, this is a preference pane called Clusters from Late Night Software, and with it, you can tell it, hey, any files under a particular folder, flip that little HFS plus compression bit and compress them for you. And it's completely transparent encryption. You don't know they're encrypted. There's no, like, decryption phase that you can see. It all happens under the covers in the file system. Uh, so you can save some space with this. Now, don't turn this on for a folder full of QuickTime movies or something because they're already compressed and you're not going to get much more out of them. But if you have some easily compressible data and you would like to have it transparently compressed for you, this may be the ticket. Uh, on the other hand, it's possible that there's a good reason that Apple has not exposed HFS com uh, plus compression in the user interface. Uh, so I think this type of software is the type of thing that exists on the borderline between what Apple, what Apple's operating system is capable of and what they recommend third-party developers use. And we will touch on that again, actually, uh, later in the show. Uh, and I also put a link in the show notes to the section about HFS plus compression in my Snow Leopard review from 2009. All right, so that's the end of the official follow-up. And now we begin the unofficial follow-up, which is the main topic of the show, which is more about file systems. Because believe it or not, at the end of the last show, I thought of 20 things that I didn't talk about related to file systems, and a lot of people asked about them. Mm. Well, let's do our first sponsor, and then we'll kick that part off. What do you think? Sounds good. Our first sponsor is a longtime sponsor, Shopify.com. Love these guys. Uh, very simply, I've told you about them before. Create your online store today with Shopify. They make it super simple to make your own store and you can sell whatever you want. One of the questions that I had people were asking me about this I said, well, that's perfectly fine if you're selling, you know, physical goods, if you're selling a t-shirt or you're selling electronics or you have a Kickstarter project that, you know, you need to storefront for it. What if I want to sell something electronic? What if I wrote a, a, a book, you know, and I want to sell the PDF of it? Or what if I have something that I want to control down? Yes. Of course you can do that with Shopify.com. There are tons of add-ons and tons of little things that, that people have written for exactly this kind of thing. In fact, uh, my friend Jeffrey Zeldman, they have a company called a, a Book Apart. And all of the books that they do for designers and developers, that's a Shopify store. And they customize the heck out of it. You wouldn't even recognize it. It's totally – so here's the deal. Normally, you go in there and you, you sign up on Shopify.com. You get 30 days free. Use the coupon code 5 by 5 when you're signing up, you'll get three months free. And of course you can use the site and sell everything you want within that, uh, that time frame. Of course you can. So go there today, shopify.com coupon code five by five and join more than 20,000 stores selling their stuff on Shopify. John himself, you're even opening up a, a store. I am not I'm going to be selling USB headsets. All right. Are ready? ready? Main topic. Yes. The main topic is actually inspired by follow-up, and you mentioned it at the very top of the show because you've been seeing the same emails as I have. Everybody was asking in the last show, 
all you know. So I listened to your show about file systems. Uh, how does all this change in light of solid state disks? That's the, that is the question of the week. Uh, and I didn't talk about it in the last show, so we'll talk about it now, and I'll use it as a jumping-off point to talk more about these file systems in general. Uh, one of the reasons I didn't talk about it is because there's no clear answer. Uh, how do, how does it change? And it's not even we can't even say it changes completely or not at all. It's somewhere in the middle. Uh, so I'm trying to think of uh, things that file systems do that clearly have spinning disks in mind as a way to uh, get into the topic of how that might change with SSDs. So the biggest one I could think of, and maybe you can think of some more, is putting related information close together on the disk. Because the big thing you want to avoid on a spinning disk is moving the disk head. That is by far the most time-consuming thing you have to do because especially with, you know, uh, disk get, disks are getting faster, but the speed with which you can move a disk head from one place to another on a disk has not been getting faster nearly as much as the size of disks have been increasing, you know, because you have to move the little head and then wait for it to stop it exactly over some microscopic little track on the disk and then wait for it to stop wiggling back and forth and sort of settle down so we can read again. And they can do that amazingly fast. It's amazing. What is like a, a seek time is like nine milliseconds or something like that. Uh, but it's still super slow compared to how fast it can stream data off a single location on disk. So putting stuff together on a spinning disk is really important. Uh, you can see this yourself. I think regular users have some idea about this. When you have a like a 100 megabyte folder, and but it's filled with thousands and thousands of files that are a few bytes each. How long does it take to duplicate that versus how long does it take to duplicate a single 100 megabyte file? If your disk is not full and you have lots of free space, duplicating a single 100 megabyte file can be really fast, amazingly fast. Because if the 100 megabyte file is kind of all, all the data of it is kind of in the similar place on the disk, you don't need to do many seeks. You read long sequences of bytes off of the disk before you have to move the disk head to, to get the rest of the bytes. That's really fast. But moving thousands and thousands of little files, even if the total amount of data is the same, to get it thousands and thousands of little files, well, you have to go read the directory entry. And let's imagine this is HFS plus. So you got to go to the catalog file, which is in a central location. So you read the directory entry. And then the catalog file points you to, okay, here's the first file, and here's what it's called, and here's where the bytes are. So move the disk head and get the bytes for that file. And that's really quick because there's only a few bytes. And then write the file to the new location. So make a new directory entry that's back to the catalog file. And write the name of the file there. And then write the bytes for the file. Okay, let's write those bytes for the file someplace else on disk. You've done like six seeks, and all you've copied is like two bytes of data. Like if this was a tiny little file. In fact, most of your time might have been spent just writing the metadata about the file's name, the date, you know, all these other all this other information. But you're seeking all over the disk. Get a little bit of data, go back to the catalog file, write the new location, write the data. It takes forever because seeking time starts to dominate how long the entire operation takes. Whereas the actual writing data to disk, when you look at the stats on a disk, like, oh, we can do 30 megabytes per second or 40 megabytes per second. Yeah, that's how much you can write if the disk head is pretty much not moving and the disk is spinning underneath it. Uh, once you start moving the disk head around, you're spending all your time moving and very little time actually writing data. So the big thing that file systems try to do in in the uh, at all times, but especially in the modern age, is no disk seeks. Put related stuff close together. Pack it all next to each other. Don't make the disk head move around. So how does that relate to SSDs? The big thing with SSDs is you know there's no moving parts. There's no disk head moving back and forth 
trying to grab little pieces. It's just it's just a bunch of memory chips. And the naive view of memory chips is like, oh, I can get at any part of those memory chips instantly. I don't have to move anything anywhere. I just say, give me byte number 56 and I get it. Give me byte number 3000 and I get it. And asking for byte 56 directly after I ask for byte 3000, it doesn't make any difference, right? There's no, there's nothing to move. Well, flash memory, unfortunately, is not as simple as the naive, naive view of memory might be. Uh, there are some limitations, and the limitations are different for flash memory of different kinds. They're different for DRAM, different for all sorts of memory chips. The, the stuff that goes on inside the memory chips, we like to think of it as a black box that just stores our bits and gives us back, but it's really fiendishly complex. And if you don't know how, for example, DRAM works, I encourage you to go to Wikipedia and read about how DRAM works. You will probably be horrified and amazed that anything <laughs> works at all because it's, it's terrifyingly <laughs> scary. Flash is similarly ter- terrifying. It has these crazy limitations that don't make any sense until you figure out how like the chips are actually laid out and how the physics work and the economics of fabbing and why they're made this way. Uh, I'll try to give a reasonable high-level summary of it. But the, the short answer is that it does help to have things near each other when, uh, when using flash memory because although it doesn't take any time to... There's nothing to seek from one location to the other... Flash memory cannot be arbitrarily updated in exactly the size pieces that you want. There are larger chunks that you, you know, you can't just say, okay, I want, I'm going to write two bytes here. I'm going to write one byte there. I'm going to write one byte over there. And everything's honky dory. The flash chips themselves tend to have to do operations in larger, evenly sized chunks than you would want. So that might mean erasing an entire block, reading the entire contents of an entire block, uh, Erasing the whole thing and writing it back plus the change instead of just writing your change. Uh, I tried to highlight the one part that's relevant, most relevant from the Wikipedia page to uh, NAND flash memory that's moved in most flash drives. Uh, and the upshot according to Wikipedia, and I don't know enough about it to know whether this is accurate, but I assume it, it probably is because it's just a technical matter, is that it says you can erase memory a block at a time. But So you can read it in little pieces, and you can write it in little pieces, but you can only erase it a block at a time. And, and the next wrinkle to that is that when you erase, you set all the bits, but when you set them, you can only clear bits. So if you're setting something in a region that has all ones in it, all you got to do is blank out the ones that are zeros to make your bit pattern. So if you're writing 1010 and you got 1111, you just blank out those two ones and voila, 1010. You just wrote only the amount of data you needed. Uh, but when you erase it, you have to erase the entire thing, the entire the block, and the block is much bigger than the, the region you're just interested in updating. And since you can only clear disks, if a region has more zeros than the data you're about to write there, you're like, oh, I can't, I can't write this because I, all I can do is change things. Uh, it, all I can do is change things to zeros, but it's already got too many zeros. I can't change that zero to a one. So if I can't change that zero to one, my only option is to erase this entire block, set it all to ones. You know, read the block first, erase the entire block, and write the entire block back plus my changes. Uh, there are probably uh, better articles about this, and someone has them in the show notes to NN Tech. I was trying to Google for better links to this uh, before I started, so I will add this one that came up in the show notes. Oh, he linked to the print-only version of it, but I guess I'll throw that one in. Uh, so, I mean, the, the detail, details don't matter, but the point is that operations to flash memory don't necessarily only modify the bits that you're interested in. Sometimes they have to modify entire large blocks of bits. 
even if you're only interested in changing a, a small portion of them. So that argues for trying to make your data that's related close to each other. Otherwise, you're going to spend your time erasing an entire block of data just to put one byte there and then erase a whole totally unrelated block of data to put, to put another byte there. Uh, now, I'm not sure if this means that putting stuff close together is like a big win on Flash. Certainly, it's not as big a win as it is on spinning disks. But at the very least, it probably does no harm. And there are reasons to think that it might be beneficial, like the, the same file system uh, layouts that put things close together would also benefit flash memory. Uh, because then it lets it uh, do operations that modify more of the block, the whole block that it might need to erase. Uh, but the flip side of that is if there is a file system that goes through great lengths and bends over backwards and has this really complicated structure completely aimed at minimizing seeks. It's like, oh, we just got to pack everything together and we have to do all this complicated stuff and the code is complicated and the, the IO scheduling is complicated Also, it can avoid seeks. It could be that that complexity is not worth the benefit that you get in SSDs and a file system that doesn't go to such great lengths to make sure data is, is close together but is much simpler and much more reliable and has fewer bugs or whatever might be fine on an SSD because the things that hurt it on spinning disk don't hurt it as much there. So that's not a very good answer. The answer is uh, basically it depends, and and I don't think anyone is really sure. And all the file systems that I've been talking about, with the possible exception, exception of ButterFS, were conceived in a time when people didn't realize that SSDs would be the phenomenon that they are. And, and ZFS is, uh, I think it's close to 10 years old now. It's, it's pretty old. Uh, and back then, yes, SSDs existed, and they certainly didn't want to do anything that would be silly on an SSD, and I don't think they did, but they, it wasn't designed for an SSD. Many of the considerations in the file system design were based on uh, spinning disks, and ButterFS looks a lot like ZFS, uh, but it's newer, so they may have more SSD stuff in mind. Certainly, there is no file system that I know of that's in widespread use that was designed from the ground up to say, forget spinning disks. In fact, if you run this on a spinning disk, it might be hideous and terrible. This is entirely aimed at SSD. Uh, Boyd Waters wrote in to say that, to quote him, plopping NAND flash behind a SATA interface is stupid. So what he's, what he's showing is that thinking of the, the storage hierarchy that exists in current things. You've got the CPU register file, you've got the, the caching on the CPU, then you've got the RAM, then you've got the, the I.O. controller chip, then you've got the the SATA interface and then you've got this flash disk and you put disks in, in scare quotes because it's not actually a disk. Uh, why does that big structure exist? Why do these flash memory chips have to pretend they're a spinning disk? Doesn't that seem like a, a silly kind of archaic? It's kind of like a computational skeuomorphism where <laughs> it's pretending to be a disk because everything expects there to be a disk there, but it's totally not. Uh, this is an interesting issue that has come up many times in the, in the past decades. Like, why do we have disk and memory? Wouldn't it be nice if everything was just memory? That's the, the, you know, the computer science dream. Everything's just a big open field of bits and it can be addressed randomly, written randomly, read randomly. And there's no difference between something that's in disk and it's in memory. It's just one big continuum. One way to do that would be to have no disk and just have everything in memory because then everything is memory, right? Uh, 
but that's t- generally not feasible because memory is measured in you know gigabytes and uh, disk space is measured uh, measured in terabytes. So they're not close. And the other thing is just let's have a unified interface. That yes, is flat flash is slower than uh, than DRAM. But DRM is also slower than L3 cache, which is slower than L2 cache, which is slower than L1 cache, which is slower than registers. It's a hierarchy of memory. How close, quote unquote, close is this memory to the CPU? How long does it take the CPU to get to it? That hierarchy exists. And traditionally, if you were to graph how, you know, how long does it take to get a piece of memory out of L1 cache, L2 cache, L3 cache, it's like a hockey stick graph. Uh, and especially when you hit disk, it's like, well, now you might as well just go on vacation because that data is not going to be coming back for another 8 billion cycles of the CPU. So uh, forget it. Flash memory is faster than disk, but that wall is still there. The, the gap between the speed of memory is still there. But still, uh, the idea is that why not just have this as a uniform storage hierarchy with uniform interface and not have disk I.O. to be this totally separate thing. Uh, that's something that someone like Apple is not going to probably tackle anytime soon, but it's it's been in the air, you know, probably since the 60s or 70s, the idea that a unified interface to memory would be better than, and, and probably a lot of old machines did have a unified interface, but uh, in, the, in the, the personal computer age, the split between disk and memory is pretty baked into the way that we do things. Uh, so let's consider what might change if everything was unified. Well, one thing that would have to change is that the operating system would have to be different because in the operating system, the file I.O. calls are very different from the calls to manipulate memory. File I.O. calls, you've got you know opening files, reading, writing files. They're just structured differently, take different arguments, have different semantics than the memory calls, which are you know uh, setting memory, getting memory, copying memory, and just bit operations that happen in memory uh, in two entirely different APIs. So you couldn't just say, okay, memory and disk are all one because everyone's programs wouldn't work anymore. Because you know, you'd, have to, you'd have to make some sort of shim layer there. And, and ideally, you'd want one unified interface to a new set of APIs that uh, looks the same for both of those things. And what does that new interface look like? And who's going to adopt that new interface? And who's going to design it? That's a big problem. Uh, one thing that would go away are these really complicated APIs that we have now for memory mapping files where you say, look, I want to manipulate manipulate this really big file, but I want to read every single byte of it off disk, and I want to manipulate it as if it's all in memory, but I can't fit it all in memory. So can I memory map the file? And memory mapping will automatically make it look like your entire file is in memory, but just pull in the parts that you need on demand. And that's a very complicated system, and the API is very complicated. Uh, that kind of stuff would go away if you had a single unified interface to the entire storage hierarchy or maybe it would just shift and that becomes part of this unified interface. But it's a complexity that exists now because we know that files are much bigger than memory. We know we can't fit an entire file in memory, so we have to make this weird illusion that it's kind of in memory when it's not. Uh, but the big, big one that I thought of is that you'd have to reconsider uh, limits, limits that we take for granted now. So, for example, when you run out of disk space, that's a dead end right now. Good old no space left on device. Right. That's that's the end, you know. This there's no program in existence that says when I run out of disk, like what can it, what can a program do? Well, geez, I'm out of disk. It can tell you I tried to do that for you, but your disk is full. So uh, and and by the way, Unix does not deal well with the disk being full for reasons we'll probably get into in a, a bit later. Uh, and you don't want your disk to be completely full. Lots of bad things happen. But running out of RAM. Wait a minute. Not, what do, you say Unix doesn't handle it well. What does handle it well? 
Uh, or is that is that part of that next topic? Yeah, uh, what does handle it well yeah. in the in the days before Unix, for example, in classic macOS, in like really classic macOS, uh, like you know System four point two, you could have your disk filled up to the brim, and everything would still pretty much work. Okay, you know you couldn't save stuff, but you wouldn't be using the thing, and it would just blow up. Whereas Unix uses the disk space for all sorts of things. And if your disk even gets close to full, lots of things are going to start falling down, not just the program you're using. So you can't just happily use your Mac with an entirely full disk. In fact, I don't even know if you can get your, your disk entirely full without sort of cheating by booting into single user mode and using DD to fill up the disk. I don't even think you can boot with, a, with an entirely full disk. Once you get anywhere near close to disk full, Mac OS X starts throwing dialogues in your face and say, this disk is almost full, seriously, delete stuff, you've got a problem. Uh, and there's a good reason for that. Uh, but in the modern era, running out of RAM is not a dead end. And I say the modern era being like Mac OS X certainly, but even in the latter days of classic Mac OS. What happens when we run out of RAM? We run out of RAM all the time. Uh, you run out of RAM and you swap some stuff to disk. So you take some stuff that's in memory. So I don't have room to put everything in memory that I need to put in memory. Let me take something that's in memory or write it out to disk temporarily. And now I've freed up some new room in memory. And it tries to put stuff onto disk, tries to swap stuff out that hasn't been used in a while. And this is the basis of the, all modern virtual memory systems with swap, where they will try to let it appear to your programs as if you have way more RAM than you do. So programs, eh, back in the old days in a 32-bit thing, they would think that they had, you know, two to four gigabytes of RAM when maybe your computer only had 128 megabytes of RAM. And the program was blissfully unaware of that. It would just try to address memory. And the operating system, every time you filled up the actual RAM chips, it would just swap things in and out to disk to make enough room for the stuff you're currently using in RAM. Now, swapping is bad and it's slow because if your program thinks something's in memory and it asks the operating system for it and the operating system says, oh, but actually that's not in memory. I had to put that in disk view, but I'll wait. I'll go get it on the disk. You just wait there. It takes forever for the operating system to come back. So here's this thing. Uh, and the program expected that to come back really quickly. So when you're computer is thrashing or swapping or one of these other terms, it means that it's trying to access a bunch of stuff that it thinks is in memory, but a lot of it turns out to be on disk. And your disk head, they're seeking all around to pull the stuff off of the disk and putting other stuff onto disk because if, if, it's, on, if it's on disk and has to pull it out, maybe it has to evict something else from RAM and put it down there. Uh, so th that's the situation we're in now where disk space fills up, total dead end, RAM fills up, it's not a dead end, but how is RAM filling up not a dead end? It uses disk space. And that's why if your disk is full, everything falls down because all these programs think that they have, you know, much more memory than they really have. And if they just blindly continue to put stuff in memory and the operating system says, well, uh, that, that actually can't fit in memory. So what I'm supposed to do on behalf of this program is evict something from memory, put that on disk and then put his thing in that spot. And when it goes to evict something from memory and put it on disk, the disk is full. And that's why bad things start happening. Uh, Classic Mac OS way back in the day did not have virtual memory, which is different than swap, and it certainly didn't have swap space. So it could happily hum along with its, you know, 512K of RAM or whatever. Uh, and if you hit the 512K RAM limit, uh, that was the end of that. It wouldn't swap stuff out to disk. So if your disk was full, no big deal. It's, it's the only time it has to write something out to disk is if you ask it to. Uh, it, not in the normal operation, it didn't write stuff. And Unix, of course, has log files that are constantly being appended to and other things that are going on in the background slowly filling your disk that you don't know about. And if your disk is full, 
all those things freak out and say, uh, you know, we've got a problem here. They would probably they would probably try to log the fact that they got a no space left on device message, and that would cause more disgaea, which would also fail. And it's just a bad scene. Uh, so there's an exception to this in the modern era, which is iOS, which some people also asked about. Uh, iOS, if you run out of disk space, that's a dead end still. Uh, if you run out of RAM on iOS, it's also a dead end. Because iOS, though it implements virtual memory, virtual memory is the mechanism by which the programs think they have much more memory than they do than they really do, and they think they all have their own memory space to themselves. Uh, it has virtual memory, but it does not use swap. So when you fill up all the RAM on iOS, it doesn't say, oh, let me put that on quote-unquote disk for you. It's disk is obviously flash. What it does is it kills your program. In fact, it kills your program long before that. The, the, iOS is a very hostile environment for programs, and the the... the application environment for running uh, GUI applications in iOS will send your application a low memory warning if it starts using too much RAM. And if the program does not respond by freeing memory, eventually the operating system will just kill that program. Say, look, I sent you a message. I told you you're getting close to the memory limit. I'm going to have to kill you. Because if you ever hit the memory <laughs> limit on iOS, that's it. It's not, you know, uh, I need more space. Well, RAM is full, and there's no more RAM, and we can't make new RAM out of thin air, and we're not going to swap the Flash. Now, one of the reasons that iOS doesn't swap to Flash is because even though Flash is faster than disk, it's still way, way, way slower than RAM. Uh, so that's one of the reasons that iOS has always been so responsive, because to get that kind of responsiveness, they had to say, well, like, we're running a variant of Mac OS X, we're doing virtual memory, but we cannot afford to, like, oh, when I swipe something on the screen, oh, hang on a second, I got to pull a bunch of that stuff that you thought was in memory. Actually, it's, it's on my flash disk and I got to pull it off the disk and it's going to take a thousand times longer than you thought it would. And then you get this stuttery animation or anything. Uh, maybe someday that will change. But uh, for now, uh, as far as I'm aware, maybe someone can correct me. Uh, iOS still does not use swap space. It puts everything in RAM. So if you're going to unify disk and RAM into one type of thing, everything would have to become a dead end because you have no other place to put stuff, right? Like when you run out of whatever you're going to call this thing, when you run out of memory, that means that your caches are full. You, you know, they, nope, you can't put it in a register, can't put it in cache, you can't put it in RAM, and uh, your disk is also full. And I think that would be a, a, a bad place to be because you could imagine getting a machine into a deadlock situation, hopefully not, hopefully in a consistent state of some kind, but where do you go from there? You don't have an out. You don't have a, a place to put stuff. Maybe you would just carve off. It would have to do the same thing where it would say, if you get close to the limit of my giant pool of memory, I'm going to warn you and then I'm going to kill stuff off because we cannot hit that limit. Uh, sort of like it, you know, it does with disk space today where you just can't get close to that limit on disk space or it'll start yelling about you. But RAM, the operating system will let you continue to use it and use it when you have a virtual memory with swap until your computer becomes so slow that you are discouraged from using it any longer and you walk away and wait for everything to swap in and out. Uh, so I think this is an interesting topic. I don't know what will happen in this area. I don't think any time in my lifetime we're going to see this grand unified uh, single pool of memory thing. Uh, but if it is going to happen, I think it will happen somewhere in the mobile space where the sizes are smaller and the entrenched uh, system of dividing uh, RAM and, and disk are not as prevalent as they are on the PC. That's the end of my fake follow-up follow-up. What's fake about that? I thought it was very real.
Well, it was, you know, it's talking about SSD is not following up something we said last time, but it's a new topic. Oh, I see. Yeah. So your your confidence level of SSD over the traditional drive, as far as a strategy for Apple, what what are your thoughts on that? Long term strategy, Apple's hardware, everything SSD. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, it's going to happen. Yeah. It's just a question of how long it takes. Because Apple sells consumer hardware, so they don't have to deal with, like, well, I need to store petabytes of data. Like, right. they're not selling servers for the data center. Uh, and SSDs are way more expensive than spinning disks. We're just kind of that inflection point where they can say, like, when I got my uh, MacBook Air, like, the biggest SSD you could get was 256, and that's what I got. Uh, and that was still bigger than the 160 gig spinning disk that was in my old MacBook Pro. So it was still a step up, but you can get like terabyte now. I think terabyte laptop drives are available. It's four times smaller than than the the biggest uh, lap spinning laptop drive you can get, and way 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 more expensive. So they're just on the borderline of like it can make people choke down uh, a much higher price for less space just because the performance is so much better. But they haven't quite crawled up to, like, oh, can I convince someone to buy a Mac Pro with just SSDs in it? Someone who wants a Mac Pro probably wants a lot more internal storage space than 256 gigs. And those drives are so expensive that if you buy four of them, now you, the, the entire cost of your computer is basically just an SSD. So the price keeps going down. The storage space keeps going up. Eventually, there'll be a point where uh, spinning disks are just seen as archaic and everyone has to have SSDs and only the people who really need gigantic amount of space need spinning disks and eventually those will probably go away too. So that's inevitable. You just get used to the fact that SSDs are coming. How long before every single computer Apple makes has SSD by default? Depends on if they discontinue the Mac Pros. Thoughts on discontinuing the Mac Pro? Don't do it, Apple. That's my thought. Please, <laughs> Apple, you, don't do it. <laughs> you like you like the Mac Pro, and you're a you're a big time Mac Pro user. Yeah, you don't want them to get rid of it. I was I saw an article from uh, I don't know if you've spoken with him, but uh, he's he's a friend of mine. He used to do a show here as well. Uh, James Duncan Davidson. He's a photographer, and uh, right now or very recently, he was out shooting Ted, and he was saying that every year that he shot Ted, which is a number of years, these guys they spare no expense when it comes to having great hardware for the people who are doing the audio video editing and then the photography editing and things like that. And they set up a whole lab and I'll try and put, I'll try and put one of these uh, pictures that he's taken of, of the lab into the show notes. And uh, by the way, thanks to helpspot.com for the show notes. And this year, instead of having two dozen Mac pros, they now have two dozen iMacs with Thunderbolt drives connected to them, RAID Thunderbolt drives connected to them. And they have officially moved away completely from Mac Pros, and now they just have iMacs. And it makes you think that if, if a company like TED, if a, if a group like TED is as, as, as serious and dedicated as they are to doing... Re and if you've ever watched the TED videos, you know these are, these are phenomenal videos. They have the best audio video photographer people in the business making them and editing them and turning them around in almost real time. It's, it's crazy how fast they put these things out. They're, they're content with iMacs. Why, why would Apple keep making the Mac pro? Who is that for? Isn't the Thunderbolt the obvious indication that they're serious about moving away from the Mac pro? 
Well, that particular application, I think, doesn't need the massive amounts of storage because it's just kind of a way station for a workflow that takes assets from the day and grinds them up and spits out some new assets. Where you need the, the big spinning disks that can store so much more than SSDs for so much less money is where does the company that uh, is responsible for recording all of TED and producing all the content, where does it store all of its information? Where does it store all the raw videos, all the raw images, all the processed files, everything forever archived? Uh, maybe it puts them all on tape and that's the answer. But I think companies that have large storage requirements, like people doing special effects for movies or something like that, they'll use SSDs for the parts where speed matters. But at some point, like they don't want to ever throw anything out. You want to have all your assets and all everything redundantly stored in a million places. And that takes up a tremendous amount of room, even just for one movie, let alone movie after movie. Like how many assets do you think Pixar has stored permanently? <laughs> yeah. In accessible, not on tape where some robot has to go pull a tape out and shove it in, but accessible in semi-real time because you might want to use that asset for a new production. You need some place to put all that stuff. And SSDs just cost too much money to... To do that now, spinning disks are so much more economical, especially since you have to have 20 of them because you have to have everything redundantly stored. And, and you know, I, there is still a big market for for spinning disks. Now, is that is Apple? Does Apple have any part of that market? Maybe they're going to say, look, if you want to do that, you're going to have to buy disk storage from EMC or something just like we at Apple do for our data centers, because we're not interested in giving you a machine that can store all that stuff. Or, as you said, uh our machines can't store it, but buy an iMac and connect one of these big RAID things that we also don't make uh, to a Thunderbolt cable, and you have really fast access to to lots of storage. Uh, the, the Mac Pro as a product exists for reasons other than just internal drives, though. It's got the slots where you can put cards that you might need, cards that don't fit inside the iMac because there's no place for cards at all. Uh, and yeah, maybe you can use a Thunderbolt external chassis, but the number of PCI Express lanes over a Thunderbolt wire is not... Uh, uh, that, that bus is not as wide as an internal slot, so... There are many reasons why the Mac Pro still needs to exist. The fact that they switched from Mac Pro to iMac for that TED thing, they probably could have gotten away with iMac uh, even sooner because it's just kind of a way station and not something that needs sure. to have lots of storage and, and those big, you know, big special purpose cards. In yeah. It. Uh, and also the other thing to keep in mind is that TED probably has a lot of money. You would think so. I put, uh, I, I did find the article and the pictures that go along with it, and I put it into the show notes. And uh, he, he says, for TED 2012, there's a pretty, do you say SATA or SATA these days? I say both. <laughs> okay. Uh, for TED 2012, there's a pretty big change in the media room. Instead of dozens of Mac Pros and piles of SATA drives like uh, there have been in the last eight TED events I've been part of, the room is full of iMacs and Thunderbolt drives, lots of Thunderbolt drives. And he has a photograph here. He says, there are 12, 12, 12 terabyte Pegasus R6 arrays. That's 144 terabytes total. <laughs> he says, it, which is about a tenth of a petabyte of usable space. For good measure, there are a few more Pegasus arrays, including one that's dedicated to photography. And he goes on to detail this. And uh, he says, this is the biggest deployment of Thunderbolt-based storage that he's seen. Yeah, I think Thunderbolt has made it feasible to have external storage that's really fast without having some weird interface card like fiber channel or something because uh internal disk was the way that's the way you, how you get the speed right because you know it's the fastest possible bus you can get it's connected right to the thing there's no long wire there's no weird interface it's you know sat is pretty fast and they would keep cranking up the speed uh and then once you went out over firewire like firewire 400 in particular was not enough to handle the output of, of a arrayed with many spindles or any large array like that firewire 800 was an improvement but still i think as the 
the Thunderbolt devices that are available today show, they'll take like a four-disc uh, FireWire 800 drive, and then they'll take a four-disc Thunderbolt uh, array. Maybe it's the same exact four mechanisms in each set, like, but they buy eight mechanisms, but four in one, four in the other, and the Thunderbolt ones just trounce it because Thunderbolt is like an external extension of an internal bus. In this case, it's the PCI Express bus. So that that probably makes it feasible for them to have storage that's fast enough to do all this HD video streaming or whatever they're doing whilst just hooking it up to an iMac with that little Thunderbolt cable. Uh, but the, the Mac Pros are still an open question, I think. Here, let's do our second sponsor. It's tinyletter.com. They're just they're putting the finishing touches on a brand new version. And uh, this is very exciting. They, they've been working hard at, on this. I talked to them about it. And uh, Tiny Letter in general, the best way for me to describe it to you is it, it is the most simple, straightforward newsletter tool that has ever existed in the history of the earth. It's elegant, it's simple, it's straightforward. It, it gets rid of all of the extra features and, and cruft and user interface layers and throws all that out the window. Now, some people might want that. Go to MailChimp.com if you want that. You don't want that? Tiny Letter. Super simple, elegant, straightforward, tinyletter.com. They have a sneak peek a video that they just put up to give you an idea of what it's going to be like. Uh, within the next few days when this thing comes out. So uh, go check it out. Thanks very much to tinyletter.com for making this show possible. I do actually have some more file system stuff lurking at the bottom here. We're going to talk about BOS? No. Okay. That would be good. I think now you're giving me more stuff. I try to <laughs> cap this at two shows. I had to assume. No, I actually, I wanted to talk more about ZFS because all the stuff we talked about with ZFS was focused on the particular failings of HFS Plus and how they're addressed by ZFS and with data integrity and all that. Uh, but there are so many more things in ZFS that, that I realized I didn't even get to that are interesting and other reasons why you might be interest, why you might want this file system. Like things that HFS aren't even a glimmer in HFS Plus's eye, uh, <laughs> but that are most modern file systems have. <laughs> and I imagine also ReFS has, but we didn't quite get to it. Okay, so... The first one, which I think I mentioned, this is these are advantages of ZFS or neat features that ZFS has. And a lot of them are not unique to ZFS, but I'm using it as the poster boy for a modern-ish file system. Uh, the first one is constant time snapshots and clones. Mm. That is a mouthful there. Uh, so I'll explain, the, first I'll explain the middle part, snapshots. So a snapshot is, like the word says, kind of capturing the state of a disk at a moment in time. Uh, and obviously we've talked about this before, it's a consistent state. So the file system might be, applications might be in the middle of doing stuff. It might be in the middle of writing files out or deleting stuff or whatever, but you're going to take a snapshot and say, look, that application might be in the middle of writing that file and it might have written half the file, but as far as the file system is concerned, at this moment in time, it knows where everything is, it knows exactly the size of everything, everything, is, all the bookkeeping agrees with each other. That half-written file, it knows that that file is, is one megabyte. Uh, maybe the file will eventually be two megabytes when the application is done, but right now, one megabyte is on disk. The metadata says one megabyte. It is a, is a moment-in-time snapshot. Uh, and what ZFS can do is freeze that and say, okay, now at any point in the future, if you ever want to see what this file system was like at this particular moment in time, it's available to you. You can look at what it looked like at this moment in time. Uh, the constant time part means that the time required to take a snapshot 
doesn't scale with the size of the disk. So it's not like it makes a big giant copy. Like you say, if you have a terabyte drive and you say, okay, take a snapshot. It doesn't say, okay, I'm going to take the entire terabyte, you know, say there's 500, you know, gigabytes on there. I'm going to take this entire 500 gigabytes and copy it someplace else. It doesn't do that. Because of the way the file system is structured, it can just make a note that this particular moment in time is important and it should be preserved. Remember that ZFS, like many other file systems, avoids overwriting data in place. It writes all new changes to a new location. When it does that, the old location eventually falls out of use. Uh, when no more uh, processes have that file open, when nobody else is using it, it said that was the old version of this file. The new one is way over there. So now we'll just say, okay, this the space previously occupied by this old file is free to be thrown back into the pool. All a snapshot does is tell the file system, hey, all of the things that make up this moment in time of the file system, don't throw them out even when everybody's done with them. Keep them around. So the literature on ZFS will say that this is instantaneous. Instantaneous snapshot creation. It's not instantaneous, but the point is that it's constant time, that it doesn't take twice as long to take a snapshot of a one terabyte disk as it does a 500 gig disk. Because the operation is basically a simple bookkeeping operation of saying, Look, all the stuff that you need for this snapshot is already on disk. All I'm telling you is don't throw that stuff out later. So it's very quick to note that like this moment in time, it's a snapshot and you just store a little bit of metadata about here's a snapshot and here's, you know, the, here's where it is in the time sequence of events and don't delete that stuff because it's um, preserving as a snapshot. Uh, so it's really just a promise in the future to not ditch those old blocks that have new versions written. And that's something you can't even imagine doing in HFS Plus because in HFS Plus, everything is written in place. And if you wanted to know what your disk looks like in a moment in time, there's nothing available to you to do that. The only thing you could possibly do is stop all processes, which you can't really do, but there's always something logging in the background in Unix or whatever. But try to freeze, every, you know, quit every application, kill all processes except for the possible minimal, maybe be, reboot in single user mode or something, and then make an exact clone of this disk to a second location, either a second disk or a second partition. And as you can imagine, making an exact clone of a disk takes a long time and if you, it takes twice as long to make a clone of a terabyte disk as a 500 gigabit disk and that amount of time is like measured in hours probably uh this is versus zfs where you can just snap your fingers and say i'll make a snapshot of that so i can get back to it anytime uh, now clones are writable snapshots clones let you say okay take a snapshot of it but actually let people make future changes to that snapshot so if you took a snapshot if you took a, if you made a clone right now what you essentially have are two file systems that look exactly identical. And you can go into one of them and start messing with stuff. Of course, the other one, you know, your main one, also continues to go along and, and they, they start to diverge from each other. This is all efficient because they share all of the blocks and disks that they have on co in common. Like so when you're making a snapshot, all the disks are in common. And then as time goes on, something changes. And what it does is, okay, well, you know, the same thing it always does. Uh, someone wants to make a change to this, right? The new version of it over there and leave the old version over there because that's part of a snapshot. So the, the two resulting logical file systems slowly diverge as, as they, more blocks change and as they differ. Snapshots don't let you modify that moment in time image of the thing, but clones say, just make it, you know, make a note here that this was a moment in time, and now future changes to this clone should be separate from the future changes to the operating system that it was cloned, to the operating system, to the file system that it was cloned from. Uh, these are two very powerful and very interesting technologies that I'm sure people who have never heard of them can think of many possible uses for them already. But the fact that they are not giant copy operations and don't scale with the size of the file system is key.
the number of snapshots you can have on ZFS is, is supposedly unlimited. But as you can imagine, if you keep taking snapshots, what you're saying is the blocks used by the data currently on the disk can never be freed. Eventually, you'll fill your disk because you're you're telling it you can't delete this old stuff. Even if, like, say you take a snapshot and then you delete a one gigabyte file off your disk. Well, it can't actually f- give you one gigabyte of free space left because that gigabyte file has to still exist in the snapshot. So it will disappear from your current disk but if you were to look back in the snapshot, it would still be there. So eventually you will fill your entire disk by taking snapshots. And you can, of course, trim old snapshots off the end and say, okay, this snapshot, I'm done with it. You can free up all the blocks there or whatever. But the whole point of all this is, is that it happens very, very quickly, basically instantaneously, which is a far cry from how long it takes to do a, a, a super duper backup or a time machine backup or anything like that. Uh, the second related feature is sending and receiving block level deltas between snapshots. This is where you can say, okay, I've got a snapshot over here and I've got a snapshot over there. What is it that's different between those two things? Find not the files that are different, but find the individual blocks on disk that are different between snapshot A and snapshot B and send them from snapshot A to snapshot B to make B match up with A. Now, this is should bring to mind a backup type of strategy, incremental backup strategy. And it's a, a big contrast with the way Time Machine works. This is a review of some of the stuff they wrote about in the Leopard review when and Time Machine was introduced. The way Time Machine works is it also has to send the differences between the last time you backed up and the current state to your Time Machine drive. So if you run Time Machine the first time, it copies everything to a second drive, right? The second time you run it, you don't want it to copy everything again. You just want it to say, what has changed since the last time you did a time machine backup? Uh, And then write those changes to the time machine backup. Uh, So the first backup takes like hours, and the second backup takes maybe five minutes. Uh, The tricky bit is how do you tell what has changed since the last time you made a backup? In in Mac OS X and Time Machine, what Mac OS X does is anytime anything makes a change to your disk, it writes a little log of it. There's a mechanism called FS events that maintains this highly compressed log that tries to coalesce multiple updates and all sorts of other things to try to make it so it's not filling your disk. But right now, as you're, if you're sitting here on your computer or, or your Mac is doing stuff uh, at home, anytime something happens to the file system, the operating system is writing to a little log file of what happened to the file system at a file granularity. So it's going to say this file changed, this file was deleted, this file was created. Uh, when Time Machine runs, it reads, it, it, it keeps track of where it was in that log last time. So it says, I did a Time Machine backup and I did all the updates up to file system event number 123. So I'm going to start from file system event number 124 and it says this file was deleted. Okay, so I know that's a change I have to make in the backup. And it says this file was modified. Okay, so I got to grab that copy of that file and put it over there. And it says this file was deleted. So, you know, it, it can go back, go through the file system event log and uh, find the things that have changed and make the new backup with them. Uh, and when it makes the backup, it doesn't make it, it does uh, it uses hard links on the target destination to say, all right, so everything is exactly the same as the last backup, except this one document changed. So it makes hard links to all of the rest of the disk, except for the directory that has that one changed file in it. And then it makes hard links to all the files in that directory, except for the one file that changed. And then finally, it copies the one file that changed over to the time machine disk. Uh, so it doesn't have to have two complete copies of your data. It's got one copy of all your data plus two copies of that one file that changed. 
you can see this is kind of a very different way to do what copy and write does at a block level in, in something like ZFS. Uh, the disadvantage is that many people who use Time Machine know if you have a big file, like a two gigabyte mail database, and you get a single new piece of email and it modifies your two gigabyte mail database file, the next time Time Machine runs, it's going to see a file system event that says, ah, since the last time I ran, the mail database has changed. And then it's going to copy the entire two gigabyte mail database, all two gigabytes of it, over to the Time Machine disk. Because that's the only thing it can do. It's got the old version of the two gigabyte mail database on the Time Machine disk, and now there's a new version. It's got to copy the entire version over there. If you have any large files that change frequently, your Time Machine backups are going to be humongous. You're going to be doing gigs and gigs of I.O. when maybe only a few kilobytes changed because it works at the file level. The FS events mechanism works at the file level and Time Machine works at the file level. This is why mail programs that used to have two gigabyte databases have since been changed to use thousands and thousands of little tiny files because when a little tiny file changes, just a little file has to be copied, not the entire file. But there are still large files that are modified fairly frequently and it's just so wasteful to have to, you know, I add, I added three words to the end of this big Word document, so i got to copy the two megabyte Word document again. If that happens over and over again, you're filling your backup disk way, fa way faster than you think you should. Uh, and you're doing a lot more I.O. You're, you know, you're copying tons and tons of stuff, uh, uh, you know, from one place to the other. So everything takes longer. Uh, now, this, this mechanism of figuring out what has changed through the file system event thing, uh, this was introduced... Uh, I believe it was introduced when Spotlight was introduced because Spotlight uses the same thing. Spotlight is the thing that indexes all the files on your desk so you can search for them. And it doesn't just index the file names, it also indexes the file contents. So anytime something happens on your disk and a file is written, the Spotlight daemon, well, it's not the Spotlight daemon, one, one of the daemons related to Spotlight is listening in on that file system event stream, listening for every single thing that happens on your disk. And when something happens, it goes, aha, a file has been modified or created or deleted. I have to do something. So say a file was created. It says, oh, new file is created. And it's notified in real time when that happens. And it says, oh, I got to go index that file. So it sticks its little indexer on that file. And that, the indexer reads some portion of the file and updates its index of stuff and says, okay, I read this file and I indexed it and it's in there. Same thing when a file is deleted. So this file was deleted. I got to remove that file from my index. So when they search for it later, they don't find it because it's gone. Uh, when this mechanism is introduced, this fire hose of file system events real-time streams of what's happening in the file system was only available to selected Apple processes. So Spotlight could do it, and uh, a few other things were listening on the, the fire hose of file system events. And the reason it was limited to only a few listeners was because this is all happening in the kernel of the operating system. It's the only way to catch all I.O. that happens to a disk is to, to hook into the kernel. The file systems event mechanism was hooked into the kernel. So anytime any I.O. happened, it could go through this list of people who are interested. Hey, is, is anybody listening for file system events? i got to tell them this happened. Hey, this file was created. Oh, hey, this file was deleted. Hey, this file was modified. Things that happen inside the kernel, first of all, things that happen inside the kernel tend not to be able to be swapped out to disk for uh, what I hope are obvious reasons <laughs> because the kernel is where you implement the swap stuff. So right. for, if, if, for example, the code that swaps virtual memory to disk is swapped to disk and you need it to get the stuff off disk, you're in a bad situation. So most kernel memory is wired down. Wired down means that it can't be swapped to disk. And the kernel has buffers for storing like messages that it's going to send. And most of those buffers are fixed in size and small because they, you know, growing memory in, in the kernel is another thing that uh, tends to be frowned upon. You want a bunch of small fixed size buffers. 
Uh, so when you're sending messages to these things that are listening for file system events, you've got a window of time when things have to happen. The kernel's got to put the notification in, in some buffer queue for say, okay, uh, by the way, spotlight thing, you wanted to know when something happened, well, something happened. Uh, well, say tons of things are happening really, really fast. Like 100 files are created as fast as you possibly can. The thing listening for file system events has a responsibility to consume those events, to pull them off the queue and do something with them at a speed that's close to the speed that they're being filled in. Otherwise, the buffer is going to get full. And what happens when the buffer is full? Like, oh, it's, it's like the uh, Lucy with the, the assembly line chocolates thing. What episode? It's from I Love Lucy. I don't yeah, know. If it's this the is one it. where she works in a chocolate factory and the chocolates are coming out faster than she can box them up or whatever. Yeah, she's supposed to be putting, she's, she's the consumer in this. She's supposed to be putting <laughs> them in boxes and putting them away. But if, right. if the producer, if, you, if the, the chocolates start coming down the assembly line too fast, you, you know, what happens is the chocolates get dropped on the floor. Uh, so that can happen with file system event consumers. If the, if the consumers are not pulling the events off the queue as fast as they can, are they coming in? they will end up missing events. And the whole point of this mechanism is not to miss anything. I have to know everything that happened. So imagine for, for the thing that writes the log of things that happened. That's the whole point is it has to, to make a note of everything that happened. And it really can't miss an event because then say files are being created really, really fast and things like, oh, I'm, all right, I'm keeping up. I'm pulling these events off the queue. Uh, I'm keeping track of all this stuff. I'm, it, it would consolidate events to say like this, if this file was changed 17 times in sequence, the event log just needs to know the file was changed. It doesn't need to know how many times it was changed. So it would consolidate all those 17 changes into a single change event, but eventually it's got to write out to its little compressed log file on disk, this file changed. And it's got to do that fast enough that it doesn't get overwhelmed by the events that are coming in. Because if the kernel can't put another event on the queue for this listener, it's, it's going to send out a message and say, look, I had another event for you, but there's no place to put it. Your queue is full. I can't put it in your queue. If I did, I'd have to delete one of the things that's there. So I'm just going to send you a message that says, dude, you didn't keep up. You, you, you missed an event. Sorry about that. If that happens, the next time Time Machine runs, it may not know about some file has been modified. And then when your disk goes bad and you restore from your Time Machine backup, you're like, wait, where's that file? And if it's not there, that's bad. So there are certain constraints, especially for backup software, but even for something like Spotlight, where like say you make a new file and something couldn't keep up and you go searching for it and you can't find it. It's never going to get into the index because nobody knows that, you know, all, you know, all it can do is send to the, to the, the, uh, the process, you missed an event. What is the recourse that Time Machine and Spotlight have if they miss an event? They, the, the alternative strategy is really, really bad because like, right, so I missed an event. Something happened and I don't know about it. The kernel's never going to tell me again because it's long since forgotten about that and moved on to other things. And I don't know what happened. Maybe a really important file was modified or deleted or created or something. And if I can't add it or remove it to my index and I can't put it in my log so the time machine knows to copy it to another disk, we've got a bad situation here. So what most of those programs do in response to you missed an event is they say, Oh, I guess I got to scan the whole disk again from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And maybe you've seen this. If you do something that angers either Time Machine or Spotlight, where you, you log in and Spotlight says it's indexing your disk again. It's got to read every single file in every single directory, starting from the beginning right now. So it's got to say, forget it. I'm, I'm totally screwed up. I got to do everything over again. Re-indexing with Spotlight, a one terabyte disk that's filled or doing a brand new time machine backup from the beginning and figuring out on a file-by-file -file basis, is this file changed? No. Is this file changed? No. It takes forever and grinds your disk to death. This is all very, very bad. <laughs> so 
that's why in when this mechanism was introduced, the public interface for applications was, all right, you can't drink from the fire hose because you can't be held responsible for being able to keep up with the stream of stuff. And furthermore, if we have too many listeners listening for every single file system event that's happening, we're, we're going to have to slow down and we might not have enough kernel buffers for them. And it's just, you know, this is not for you. Don't touch us. But we'll have a public interface that will give you a much lower uh, granularity of updates. Instead of telling you any, every time something changes, all we're going to tell you is something changed in this directory. And we're not going to tell you what it was. And those events can come kind of in a leisurely manner. So if there's some huge amount of file system activity going on, your application using this API is only going to find out about it perhaps after a whole bunch of stuff has changed. And it's just, and all you're going to get is something changed in this directory. And what happened? I don't know. That's not up to us. So that is a much uh, lower granularity of event than this file was deleted, this file was created, this file was modified, this file was deleted, you know, that type of thing. And that was the public interface to file system events. Now, and, and Time Machine can consume that as well. Because but, but what that means is that when you get an event that says something changed in this directory, you have to have a way to figure out, all right, well, what changed? One of the ways you could figure it out, for example, if you were a Time Machine, is they could say something changed in this directory. All right, well, I've got a backup copy of that directory. Why don't I read that the entire contents of that directory and compare it to the current contents and find the differences? This is something similar to what uh, end user programs do when they get a notification. It's up to the program to say, look, if you're interested in changes in this directory, start by reading the contents of the directory and then listen and we'll tell you if anything changed. And when we tell you something changed, reread the contents of the directory and compare it to the copy you had in memory and see what changed. And then you can tell, oh, this file is new, this file is modified. You know, that's kind of annoying and cumbersome or whatever. But you can do that sort of at your leisure without angering the kernel who's sending a little chocolate down the assembly line and uh, without being responsible for pulling chocolates off the assembly line fast enough to keep up with what's going on with file IO. Uh, now, all this is a very roundabout way to talk about how ZFS tackles the same problem. ZFS doesn't have to have something in the kernel that listens for file system changes and writes them out to a compressed log file. There is no continually growing compressed log of all the things that have happened in a ZFS system. And the thing that has to send the differences between one snapshot and another doesn't read a big log of the things that happened. The file system itself is essentially a log of all the things that had happened because it doesn't overwrite data. It only writes data to a new location. So it's basically got a long stream of new data just being added and added and added and then being reaped off the back when it's no longer in use. So the thing that has to find the, the differences between one snapshot and another, first of all, it doesn't have to do it at the file level because that's not how the file system works. All the I.O. is at a block level. So if you change three bytes inside a two gigabyte file, you're going to have in ZFS, those three bytes written to a new location, the old three bytes in an old location. Uh, and you'll know uh, since the last time I looked at this or since from one snapshot to the other, one snapshot includes this, this, these, those three bytes in this block and the other snapshot includes those three bytes in this block. And it can just send those bytes from one place to the other. It doesn't have to send the entire two gigabyte file. It doesn't have to keep track of the fact that, that file changed because when it sees that this snapshot has one block for this file and this snapshot has the other block for the file, everything's checksum. It knows the contents of the, of the blocks are different. It knows which one came later. It doesn't, it's sort of like inherent in the structure of the file system itself uh, what has happened who, and what the differences are between these things. Uh, it's not instantaneous to figure out what the block level diffs are, but it doesn't require scanning all of the source 
and all definition destination and comparing them. Uh, that, that's one of the reasons why this type of strategy long ago was called log structured file format, where just everything is appended to the end as a big linear stream of new things that have happened. Uh, and snapshotting just merely tells it which sets of these are relevant to each other. Uh, so this is one of the reasons people were excited about ZFS. Uh, you can imagine a time machine rebuilt on top of something like ZFS. You, your uh, time machine backups would look like this. First of all, you could do time machine backups locally. Uh, now, people who know about Lion know that it has local time machine backups too, because this is important for laptop users, which is increasingly pretty much a close approximation of Mac users, because the vast majority of people buy Macs are buying laptops, and they tend to just have one disk. So what do you do for backups? Well, Apple, since they're straddled with HFS Plus, just added another mechanism whereby anytime a file is saved, it writes out it tries to write out the byte-level diffs between that file and this whole separate directory full of files. Everything that happens in HFS Plus is built on top of the file system rather than being built into it. So it's another bunch of files and another bunch of database files. It's like a SQLite database and little chunks of files. You know, say, oh, someone saved the new version of this file. Well, since they're a laptop user and they're not connected to their time machine disk right now, make a note of this change and figure out which bytes changed since last version of this file and write them out to the separate directory in a separate file. It's, it's all in an application level type of thing. And it's not particularly elegant or nice. Uh, but this is something that, that they're trying to do to protect uh, Mac users who are frequently away from a time machine drive. Well, if you have ZFS, you could take snapshots of the entire disk every five minutes. Or every time you saved. Or any, you know, instantaneously at any time you wanted. It wouldn't require any daemons listening for things or any separate database files or any SQLite database of different changed ranges or any secret directory full of chunks of old files with directories named after dates and all that stuff. All that stuff wouldn't have to exist. It would be inherent in the file system itself. So to do a time machine backup, you would take a snapshot. And the reason you want to take a snapshot is because you want to do a backup as, in a, as of a point in time. That's another thing that time machine can't do. When you start doing your time machine backup, you might realize as you're using your computer that by the time you finish doing your time machine backup, the disk has changed. So <laughs> what what is the time machine backup? Is, right. is it a backup as of the time it started or as of the time it ended? It's kind of a melange of all of them combined. <laughs> like if if you're editing a file and you see the little time machine spinning thing, you know, it's backing up right now and you hit save, you have no idea which version of that, of that thing got saved. In fact, what a time machine will do is after it's done running, it will quickly see, all right, while I was running, did anything happen? And it will run again. And it only does that, I think, once or twice and tries to sort of catch up. But it's not a point in time of anything. It's just kind of a mixture of, diff of different things. Uh, so if you had ZFS, you would take a snapshot and say, look, I've got a completely consistent point in time snapshot instantaneously. This is what the contents of the disk was. Then you can make a clone, a writable snapshot of that on the backup disk or, you know, in, in place or wherever you want to do it. And then you could send the block level diffs between the snapshot and the clone anytime something changes. So you would have on the backup disk a series, a series of, of uh, they have to be writable because you have to send the block level diffs. You would have a series of, of clones that you send the block level diffs to. And to figure out what has changed since the last time, you don't have to read some big log of stuff or anything like that. And if a two gigabyte file has changed, you don't have to send the entire two gig file. You can just change, send the blocks that have, have been modified. It would be vastly more efficient, vastly more reliable. And just the number of neat things you could do with the constant time snapshots and clones and block easy block level diffs is just tremendous. Uh, you might still need a mechanism by, uh, through which applications can listen for uh, file system events and things that are changed, but then that that suddenly takes it off of the path of things like 
backups, uh, which can't possibly miss anything because they don't have to worry about missing anything. It's inherent in the file system itself. There's no way they could possibly miss any event because there are no events being written. It's just that's how the file system is structured. Uh, and one, one more final thing that I want to talk about. I, there's more things for ZFS. You should read the ZFS Wikipedia page. It's got a lot of stuff. Uh, deduplication. This is sort of an, an enterprise feature that ZFS has because it's an enterprise file system. Uh, what this means is that so ZFS is basically managing these big blobs of data. Every, uh, a single large file could be made up of lots of variable-sized blobs that all make up the entire piece of data. And each one of these blobs is checksums, of course, because that's what ZFS does. Well, once it has these checksums, which are small compared to the data, you know, you could have, I don't know how big the blocks are, but like a megabyte, five, 12 kilobytes or whatever. The checksum itself is like, you know, 256 bits. It's very small. So given that you have all these checksums, what you can do is when you say you write out a two megabyte file, and then you write out another two megabyte file a week later that happens to have the exact same contents as that first two megabyte file. Why are you storing the exact same two megabytes in two different places on your disk? Since CFS checksum, both of those two megabyte blocks, say they're stored in big contiguous two megabyte block, it knows that they're the same. And what it can do is say, well, we don't need two copies of this two megabyte file somewhere on disk. I know these, that the contents are the same because the checksum is matched. Why don't I just get rid of one of them? And now both of those files are talking to the same two megabyte block on disk. That's, that's deduplication. And it happens at a block level, not at a file level. So if you have a, a three gigabyte file and there are like one megabyte regions within them that are identical, any region that's identical is going to be pulled out. So one example is say some file format has a long header on it. that's always identical for all files. It's just like, you know, a, a preamble or a postamble or something. And you have hundreds and hundreds of those types of files. You only have to store that preamble or postamble in the fi file format once for all those hundreds of files. So you can get disk space back by finding out which portions of the file are the same as portions of other files and only storing one of those portions. This is something that happens sort of offline where it doesn't happen necessarily in real time or whatever, but it's a way that you can say, look, my disk is almost full. Is there any way you can give me more space? It will find any little piece of any file. It's the same as any other piece of any other little file and check out one of them, or check out all of them except for one. Uh, and why does this work? It's like, well, what about when something needs to modify that again? Well, it's copy and write. Anytime you modify anything, you're always writing to a new location. This doesn't hurt you at all in terms of uh, making your, your data frozen in place or unable to be modified. This is one of the consequences of having a file system where you just write things out and never overwrite data in place. Uh, and it's part of the file system. So if Apple had deduplication as part of their file system, I've I would really not like to see them try to add this to HFS Plus. But if they had a file system that supported this, if your disk started to get full, one of the things the operating system could do is say, okay, let me just go look for, uh, let me just start deduplicating blocks and let me find some common regions of files. And it doesn't have to scan every single file to find common regions. It just has to look at the checksums, which are very, very small compared to the files. So we're going to say, you know, if it stores all its checksums in kind of like a sorted table of checksums somewhere, they can very quickly find checksums that are the same and just start uh, reaping data and marking it as free space. Uh, because it only needs one copy. So that's it for my neat features of ZFS that HFS Plus doesn't have. I hope I've whetted people's appetites for ZFS and other cool new file systems. There's not much they can do about it, except hope, wait and hope. They can be as dissatisfied as I am. <laughs> I, I put a link in the show notes to uh, more links to Jeff Bonwick's blog about these topics, a, an old ACMQ interview 
from 2007 with Jeff Bonwick, uh, uh, and a link to the original like PowerPoint presentation for ZFS. It's called ZFS, uh, the last word in file systems. These are all classic pieces of literature from ZFS. Oh, and, and by the way, on that on that ButterFS thing that that I linked to as well. Uh, there are many links to the academic pa- PDFs of the academic papers on which it's based. Even if you're someone who doesn't ever click on links to PDFs of academic papers because you expect it to be just horrible and dry and impossible to read, these are surprisingly readable to anybody with even a tiny bit of a CS background. So I encourage you to actually click on the PDFs and read the uh, the academic papers. They're short. They're not too complicated. They're not filled with equations that you're not going to understand. It's It's pretty basic stuff. that it john yeah let's want to hear my ipad 3 predictions yes of course uh, i've been going back and forth on this one i was much more sure like two weeks ago but now as we get closer i don't know so well, it seems like there's there are a few points of r- that the rumors are addressing a few points the first point is the screen everybody seems to agree there will be a retina display there's a second question, which is, will there continue to be a previous generation of iPad like the iPad 2 uh, along with the new one? There's the question of price points. Uh, and and then finally, I believe there's the question of naming conventions. Will this be the iPad 2S, the iPad 3, the iPad HD? There's even more questions. That, but yeah, so the those are the big every, ones. I'd love to hear all of them. The only thing everyone agrees on is retina display. Yeah. I also agree on that. Uh, yes. I mean, we've we've all known this. Was, this is kind of like we all know that the the MacBook Pro without an optical drive is coming. Like we know it's coming. It's yeah. a matter of time. And now we know the time. <laughs> it's that's it. <laughs> definitely right. coming. Okay. Uh, I am almost as certain that Apple will continue to sell an iPad with a non-retina display. Almost hundred percent certain because it just seems crazy to me that they wouldn't. Will it be the new iPad or will it be the existing iPad with? without the retina display like a, a two versions of the new one come out or the one that we currently have today as the ipad 2 continues to be sold i think they keep selling the old one because that i think that that the economies of scale in that work well they already have the tooling the, the assembly lines the people you know everything ready to make those exact things and maybe you stamp something different on the back of it for branding if they wanted to change it but it's the same reason they sell still sell the iphone 4 and the 3gs like once you do the investment in making those products it's much cheaper just to keep making them. And if they, you know, if they wanted to, they could change something about the name, but I don't even think they will. Uh, I think it will be just be exactly identical. It will be the iPad 2. Uh, I don't think they'll even bother renaming it to be like the iPad 3 slow version. You know, because that would just be a matter of stamping something different on the back of, of the thing. But I think they'll just continue to sell the old version. Uh, the other one that I was really, really sure about, and now I'm kind of waffling, but I'm still mostly sure, is no LTE. I was so sure there would be no LTE, but I guess I'm reading too many rumor sites and they're getting into my head. Uh, I'm pretty certain no LTE. That's I feel strongly about that. I, but now, now I have I have doubts. Doubts have been sowed by all these <laughs> rumor sites. So maybe I should just not read them. Should just stuck to my guns and say no. But LTE. You're still saying no LTE. Yeah. What about just, the price points? Uh, price is another thing that I used to be more certain of, and now I'm doubting. I. I I think I, I used to think and still kind of do that Apple sh- at least shouldn't be afraid to sell a higher priced model to, to have one model available that is more expensive than any of the current models available. Uh, I, but now I think 
that Apple is afraid of that. I don't think they should be. I think they should extend in both directions. I think they should be able to have a high-end model for people who want it. And if the high-end model is like, oh, it's got 128 gigs of of flash and the retina display and, you know, the LTE radio, because I'm wrong on that, or, you know, something like push out in the high-end. But as we get closer, I think, man, Apple just really does not want to go in that direction. The, the direction I think more people can agree on is they're going to try to push lower. If that means a price drop on the iPad 2, if that means, you know, like whatever that means, they want to keep pushing down. They always want to push down. They push down with the iPods until they're so incredibly cheap they cost about as much as a case. You can get an iPod shuffle for the same price as you can get like an, an iPhone, a good iPhone case, right? Pushing down, down, down. And I think the way they've pushed down they're going to push down with the iPads the same way they would have with the iPhones, which is selling previous models. Uh, the real question is, can Apple afford to sell an iPad with a retina display at the same price points as the iPad 2 for the same other features? So if you take an iPad 2 that has a certain amount of flash memory and it has Wi-Fi and it has 3G, can you just swap out that display and sell it at the same price? Well, certainly Apple can. They've got room in their margins to sell it at that. But if they were going to, I thought I would have seen more of a warning about future margins going. This is a thing for Horace to talk about, not me. But, but I, in the earnings call, I I, th- I would have thought that there would have been more warnings about, oh, our margins are going to be lower next quarter. So just keep that in mind. And if you ask them why, they would say, we don't talk about unannounced products and component prices and blah, blah, blah. Like they would be evasive as they always are. Uh, but if they're going to hit the exact same price points as the iPad 2 and maintain their margins, I don't, I don't think it's possible because the screen just plain costs more. No matter what kind of sweetheart deal they got on these screens, and I'm sure they got a good one, it doesn't cost the same as the old screen. Their margins have to go down. Uh, so given that, I think they may do some fancy mumbo-jumbo by shuffling the other features of the things so that the price points remain the same, but what you're getting for for the current cost of a 32-gig Wi-Fi-only iPad is is not exactly comparable to what you get with the same price point a retina display ipad this is all lots of waffling which is to say that it's clear that apple wants to hit exactly the same price points and extend down that's the ideal they want exactly the same price as the ipod 2 ipad 2 but now the price range goes lower so if you can't afford even the cheapest previous ipad now maybe you can because the cheapest model is even cheaper and yeah maybe it's last year's model i think they should extend up but i think they're afraid to uh Maybe if they introduce one with more with with more flash, like a one twenty eight gig one, they might extend up. But so if I had if you had to pin me down, I would say same price points, uh, uh, and the price range extends downward, but not upward. Uh, what else do we have? Uh, the name three versus two S. I'm not really interested in that because it's not going to change the product. Uh, that's just that's so their you, choice. You, will, you refuse to comment. Uh. 2S, 3, HD. I, Those are the, I, the ones that are floating around today. It probably depends on if it has a new case. Uh, the rumors are that the case is going to be slightly thicker. If that's the case, they're going to call it the 3. Uh, if the case is exactly the same, they could get away with 2S. And I think they might do that. But I, I'm leaning towards 3 and a different back, slightly different back. Uh, camera, I'm assuming the camera will be improved, but I also would not be shocked if it wasn't. I bet other people would be shocked if it wasn't. I bet other people would flip out, but this could be one of those ways that they maintain the price point because that camera, that piece of crap camera in the back of the <laughs> iPad, it's got to cost them two cents by now. 
And so they said, well, how can we hit the price point that we want to hit? And how can we not raise prices given that we're putting the super expensive screen in there? Well, keep the same crappy camera. Uh, Do you think a lot of people use the iPad 2 cameras? For the FaceTime video, I bet the one on the front gets much more use than the one on the back. Yeah. But, you know, we've all seen the people holding up the iPads to take pictures of stuff. It happens. Uh, everyone is like, oh, they, now they can put in the, the iPhone 4 camera in there, if not the 4S camera. You're right. They could. But will they? I don't I'm I doubt that a lot. Uh, the CPU uh, A6 versus a improved variant of the A5. I'm leaning pretty heavily towards a variant of the A5, which means a dual core chip instead of quad core. I don't think the A6 is ready yet. Uh, and I think the A5 with a better GPU and whatever in their enhancements they need for the big honking screen will be okay. And some people have said that even the A5 could handle a retina display as is now. Maybe just a few other things need to be tweaked. Uh, so what else is left? A5X, same price points, HD, no LTE, possibly the same crappy camera. Will there be anything announced at the event, such as a newer, uh, an actual new version of the Apple TV, something different that supports 1080p better, newer CPU inside? I would really like it if... Uh, I'm leaning towards, no, nothing about Apple TV. But if there is something about Apple TV, I'm, I'm thinking it's a new little black Apple TV box that just has like bumped specs, basically. It's not like an Apple television set. It works the same as the current little black square, but, you know, supports 1080p or whatever, you know. That, but nothing big revolutionary, which would save the Apple television set, Apple saves TV, whatever pipe dream that we all have for an end-of-the-year event and just give us 2012 to mostly say, if you're going to buy an Apple TV, now you can get an Apple TV 3, which looks exactly like the Apple TV 2. It's a little black square. Maybe the biggest change they make is that the, the, the remote is Bluetooth, but I don't think they would change that. I think it would just be the same. So either there's going to be no announcement or it's going to be a little dinky black Apple TV 3 type thing. So you agree, this, you agree with John Gruber who said laser focus on the iPad and, and maybe something supportive in the Apple... TV to go along with 1080p in the iPad or something like that. Yeah. Why, why would you take away from the iPad event by, by showing you the new version of the Apple TV? Uh, and, and the flip side is if there was like a really interesting TV product, like whatever Apple plans to do in TV that's different than this little box they've been making, that would have been evident on the invitation. Because that's not something you do as like, a, a, you know, oh, by the way, one more thing. We have an entirely new crazy product. <laughs> that it's just insane that's going to revolutionize television. That's what the event is about. If they're going to ever come out for, you know, we're going to revolutionize television, that's not going to be an afterthought in the event. Uh, I just don't see that. So I'm, I'm thinking nothing about television, and then people will just be sad. And they're going to say, what, what the heck am I going to... Uh, except for maybe iTunes Store selling HD stuff. That seems reasonable to me, because they're like, oh, I got this Retina iPad, and yeah, my games look great, but I got to watch these 720p movies on it, and they get zoomed up. That's kind of icky. Uh, so 1080p content could have come at any time because Macs can play 1080p now. So I don't, you know, whatever Apple is waiting on to unleash the 1080p video <laughs> content, that could be waiting on deals or re-encoding video or they got to renegotiate something. That All those deals, it's kind of like the Beatles. It's like, what was stopping the Beatles thing from happening? Just stupid negotiation. So, All right, the, la the last question I've heard, a lot of people out there speculating what apps or what kind of apps will be demoed and featured to show off the new Retina display. Um, I've heard, uh, you know, if you remember earlier this week, Adobe released Photoshop, Photoshop touch and perhaps, uh, I, I, 
I hadn't thought of this, but a couple of people on Twitter had said to me, oh, I think that app was leaked. It shouldn't have come out that soon. It was supposed to be held back. It, it came out too soon, something like that. And that was supposed to be the big app that Apple demoed on stage. Perhaps that's true, perhaps not. Question for you, what, what kind of app do you think that they'll use to highlight the new Retina display? Games is a given. They're going to do games because that combines everything they want to show. They want to show the more power, slightly more powerful GPU. They want to show that the graphics aren't jaggy or anything. Uh, drawing app is probably a good choice. The real problem, as Gruber pointed out, is the Retina display is very difficult to demonstrate because you're probably showing it in some little movie and in, in like YouTube or even Apple's own HD movies. You can't see the difference of like someone filming a retina display and then compressing that video, you know. I think he said you, you need a retina display to appreciate a retina display. Yeah, and they can do it in slides because on slides they'll zoom in. They'll slide, they'll show the zoomed in picture of a sprite from a game looking all blocky and then they'll show the nice smooth one. It's very easy to demonstrate in a slide, but when they have the actual iPad thing in their hand, what are they going to demonstrate? Uh, that, that I think this is actually a problem for for this iPad announcement because we all know there's going to be a retina display. We all know it's impossible to demonstrate. And it's like, what applications does this retina display make possible that previously were impossible? Pretty much none. It just makes a whole bunch of them better. And we all understand that. But then, like, what do you talk about for the rest of the time? If it's just an A5X, you can say, oh, and the graphics are, you know, X amount faster. Uh, if it's not quad core, you can't say, and it's a double number of cores. But even that, like, you demonstrate speed. Uh, if Even if it's LTE, that, you know, I don't know. It, I guess I guess you could look back at what they demonstrated in the iPad 2 announcement. There's not something entirely new that you couldn't do before that you can do now. It just makes things better and faster. It's kind of like a it's not a speed bump, but it's kind of like when they do, would do all new uh, all new power books. And what would be different about them? Well, they'd have faster CPUs, they'd hold more memory, the disk would be able to get bigger, and maybe the screen is nicer in some way. Uh, but that's it's not a speed bump that oh, and then have a new case so this could have a new case too so I, I think their ability to do cool demos with the ipad is decreasing and they are they're going to be forced to demonstrate their market strength by saying look at all the cool applications we have so they're probably going to demo applications that if you think about it like well you could add that application on the ipad too and yeah it looks nice it's got a retina display but there's nothing about this new iPad that now makes this application possible and it wasn't possible before. A good example is Microsoft Office. Microsoft Office could exist for the iPad 1 or the iPad 2. It happens to be If it happens to be available now, that would be a good thing to demonstrate, to say, oh, look, we've got Microsoft Office on the iPad. Isn't that awesome? And the same thing for games or any medical imaging application they want to show. I, I don't really know what their pitch is going to be. I, I just know that their job is getting harder. It's much easier to show the iPad for the first time. And then the second one, it's like thinner and, and his cameras and stuff. But... Now, it's not like they're going to keep adding gigaws and, and uh, making new things possible on the iPad. It's just going to be a demonstration of, look at the neat new uh, applications that are out for the iPad. Oh, Dock Connector. Uh, I think the Dock Connector stays the same. Do you think that we will see a new Dock Connector sometime in the near future? I really hope so. Uh, maybe not this revision. I think Almost sounds like we could do a whole show just talking about connectors. I think we did that. Oh, I, yeah, iPhone we sure 5, did. Oh, iPhone 5 is my bet for connector changes. Will it happen just for the iPhone or will it happen across happen the board? The, happen for the iPhone first. That's my prediction. Okay. And no, it will be, so, be with the 5. And it, w- it will not 
some people have speculated, will it be a US mini USB or micro USB? And you're saying, no, it will, just as we had the previous knock connector, it will be its own new thing that won't be compatible with anything else. They'll probably sell an adapter for it, but it's not like they're going to take a Thunderbolt uh, port there or some kind of other. It will be Apple's own new port that we've never seen before. I think Apple would love to use Thunderbolt, but I don't think there's room inside an iPhone to right. put the controller chips to support. It's just, it don't fit. It's not going to... It's not going to make it. Uh, and never mind that the connector itself would have to have all those chips in it and everything. That's also big and bulky. So they would love that Thunderbolt. And Thunderbolt is probably actually feasible on the iPad, but not on the phone. I think the reason they're going to go to a new connector on the phone, if it doesn't happen in the iPhone 5, then maybe the 6 or something, is that they're going to keep making that damn phone thinner. And at a certain point, it'd be like the, the phone at the thin end is like as thin as the 30-pin connector is, and it starts to become your limiting factor in, you know, uh, also, I've seen you know this, people taking screenshots of the inside. How much that, how much room on the inside of the phone that connector takes up, it starts to become an issue. It's like this this stupid connector is dictating the design of our phone to a large extent uh, because it's taking up room on the inside, and we can't make the edges any thinner than this because it gets a little bit ridiculous. Like the iPod Touch is close to the as thin as you can make it and still support that thirty pin connector in a reasonable manner. Uh, so I think it's its days are numbered, and and one of the easy predictions is. No replacement. The connector is gone, and there is no other connector. For right? It. No they use they use Wi-Fi for syncing and capacitive charging uh, for the for the charging, and that's it. There, you don't plug your phone into anything. Well, you could for charging. You can always do one little pinhole. Like charging, you can get away with a really tiny hole. You know, you think they would be able to repurpose the way they've done with the shuffle, where you can charge with the headphone jack? Yeah. It's possible you don't f- charge with a headphone jack on the shuffle you charge with the well i guess it's the usb connector through the headphone jack but yeah right but it, it goes it, in other words there's no separate there's only one hole yeah. in in the shuffle and they could do the same thing with the iphone yeah that's that's future future that's like iphone six or seven like if, if we still have this 30 pin connector by the time we're talking about iphone six it's time to start thinking that that entire connector goes away which is it's weird because that connector doesn't just sync and charge it does all sorts of stuff with peripherals uh but at a certain point, when this thing becomes a certain a phone in particular becomes a certain size, how can you attach something to this skinny little card that's just basically like a little screen in your hand? How do you attach something to that through through a port that connects with it? It it's, becomes cumbersome and unwieldy and just weird. You know, it's it's weird already to attach things to the bottom of your phone, even if it's like a battery pack or something. So I want the I want the thirty pin connector to go away. Uh, and if something has to replace it, I don't want it to be much smaller. So I'm predicting iPhone 5, but this this new iPad, I'm almost certain will have the 30-pin connector on the bottom, just like usual. Okay. And I have no inside info, just this disclaimer, in case people think I actually know stuff. I know nothing. You'll see how wrong I am on when March 7th comes if you're writing down all the things that I predicted. Just check them off. That it, then? I think that's it. 100 minutes pretty good okay have a good week john you do then <laughs> <laughs>